Well, for, you, for those of you that are visiting, we are in a series, In It to Win It. It's a missional series. We're looking at what it looks like to be in the world, to win the world, to brandish the gospel and to actually take it out the ghetto, which so often we call church, to communities and to cities that actually need to hear about Jesus and friends and family that need to hear about Jesus, friends and family that are so often in our lives. We've been looking then at the importance of translating the gospel, not just having one size fits all, but actually translating the gospel in different ways to different ages, different genres, different types of people in different ways. And then the guys have been helping us look at the gospel and prayer and overcoming the fear of man and all the different things that we need to understand as we go in the world to win the world. Well, today... I want us to do a message called Expecting the Unexpected. And I want us to look at, in particular, how we can trust in the sovereignty of God as we go into the world to win the world. So if you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 15. We're going to read nearly half a chapter today. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to exposit the story to you. And then I just want to make two real simple points as we really bring the message to a conclusion. So let's pray and then we'll dive in this together. Well, Lord, thank you just personally um, for the joy of being back. Lord, it's good to be back with family, to be back with people that you've called us to, to be with. And Lord, did you bless us now as we come to your word, as we gather around the preached word, Lord, I, I pray that these people who I dearly love would hear your words and not really mine. They would hear your voice and not merely mine. Lord, you can change us and encourage us and equip us in moments. So have your way amongst us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 15 then, verse 36, through to chapter 16, verse 15. This is how it goes. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were, who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mashiach, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. And who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You know, in our lives as Christians, there's lots of things that happen to us that are unexpected, isn't there? We have things all worked out and nailed out, how it's going to play out. And then there's a real twist in our lives and it doesn't work out like that at all in any way. A few years ago, that's what happened to us. About two and a half years ago, Emma and I decided that we were going to move to Australia. We got the green light to do that, and we started the process of getting our visa, the process which we got told to take about three months. So we thought, no problem. So we had it all nailed out. We'd start the process early 2009, and we would, without question, be living here by January 2010. So we wrote the Constitution for Sovereign Grace Ministries Australia. I then had to find directors to actually operate that as a mission and then they had to try and hire me. I thought, no problem, take about three months, I'll be here, let's get on with the business. But that is not what happened at all. It just took so long. The constitution took ages to write and to get through. Then the government would say, well, hang on, you can't really sponsor somebody like that. And he'd like, well, why can't they sponsor me? Well, he won't have enough to do. That was one of the comments. He won't have enough to do. He won't have enough to do. I've got plenty to do. And then they came back and said, well, they haven't got a place of worship. That's why we're coming. But there was just lots of things that were being said to us as to why we couldn't have a visa. And so it ended up that we didn't arrive until June 2010. That wasn't the plan. I had it all out in my mind that we would be here by January. But through all those different events, the unexpected happened. And it was delayed and delayed and delayed. And so we came a lot later. Life can be like that, right? In big things and in small things. We think we have it nailed out. But then life puts things across our path that are completely unexpected. And that's what's happening in this text before us today. See, as Paul sits in Antioch, he has got it all worked out. Just over a year ago, before this event, Paul came back with Barnabas from their first missionary trip. It was an incredible trip. It took them over 1,400 miles. They spent 18 months traveling around loads of different places, Cyprus, and Galatia, and Syria, and Cilicia, sharing the gospel with people, building local churches, establishing leadership teams, and then moving on to the next place. They just got back from that first trip about a year earlier. And since they've been back, they've, they've clearly, you know, they've had a few jobs to do, but they're ready to go again. They've been to the Jerusalem Council to try and talk to the, the Jewish apostles, really, about what's going to be needed to take the gospel to the Gentiles and how that needs to develop and look and how the Gentiles shouldn't just have to take on Jewish traditions, but the gospel needs to go beyond that. But really, as Paul sits around now in Antioch, his disposition is one of, I want to get out there again. 
He wants to go to strengthen the churches that he's planted. He wants to go and tell them about Jesus again. He wants to go and see his leaders, his friends again. He wants to strengthen the work that they're doing and ensure that they're cared for as best they can. And so he's got it all worked out. And so in verse 36, we see him talking to Barnabas and saying, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He is expecting Barnabas to say, Excellent, let's do it. But he doesn't. From verse 37, this story takes some rather unexpected turns. See, as Paul thinks he's got it all laid out and sorted out, but what quickly becomes apparent is he hasn't at all. Paul's journey would be filled with the unexpected. And within these verses that we've read today, three very clear unexpected things happen, unexpected changes in Paul's story. Here's the first one, an unexpected personnel change. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had been withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. (laughs) That's pretty wild. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. For whatever reason, Paul did not want Mark to come. See, Mark is clearly this young dude. And so Paul and Barnabas were like the major apostles before, and they had Mark tagging along with them last time. And it clearly what has taken place is Mark, for whatever reason, has withdrawn from them. Whether he kept getting sick or whether he just wasn't up for the fight, he seems to have spent a lot of time in the room while Paul and Barnabas are telling people about Jesus and trying to build churches. So Paul's disposition is, oh, I don't want to take him again. You must be having a giraffe. There's no way I want to take Mark with us again. I remember from him last time, he kept withdrawing. But Barnabas says, you know what, no, I want to take him. Let's give him a second chance. Well, they agree to disagree. They agreed to disagree for the glory of God. And so what happens is Barnabas, along with Mark, clear off to Cyprus. And Paul now, with a guy called Silas, guy commended to them by the council, heads off to Syria and Cilicia and Galatia to strengthen the churches there. That was really unexpected. Paul had never envisaged that he would fall out with Barnabas, that these two greats would not be joined together for all eternity, telling people about Jesus. And yet in the sovereignty of God, that's exactly what happened. God didn't cause the disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, but God certainly used in his sovereignty that disagreement to make one apostolic team into two. Now they had two apostolic teams being sent out on mission across the world. See how God used that? Two teams now establishing churches and telling people about Jesus. Two are better than one, and that's exactly what happened in the sovereignty of God. There was an increased advancement of the gospel through their sharp disagreement. However, this was indeed very unexpected for Paul. This was an unexpected personnel change. But then comes an unexpected destination change. You see, when Paul had finished in Galatia, telling people about Jesus and strengthening the churches there, as he's hanging out with Silas and continuing to care for the churches, now Timothy joins him, a guy that actually probably got saved on his first missionary trip, but now he's got a little bit older, he's more strengthened in the faith, 
And Paul was to take him with him. So now Paul and Timothy and Silas, their plan is that they're going to go south and minister in Asia, in what is now common day Turkey. He's got it all worked out. But that's not what God had in mind. Verse 6 of chapter 16. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mashiach, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mashiach, they went down to Troas. So let's get this straight. He tried to go south to Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. So he tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him. Just as an aside, is it just me? Or do other people wonder what that actually looks like to be stopped by the Holy Spirit? You know, is the Holy Spirit really Gandalf? And is that what happened? Did Paul get to it? The Holy Spirit comes out, you shall not pass. Is that what happened here? I mean, what did it actually look like? Is Holy Spirit like Hulk Hogan jumping out a tree and wrestling to the ground saying there's no way you can come here? What did it actually mean? It doesn't really tell us. I think what is most likely, though, is the Holy Spirit either removed from them a piece about the direction that they wanted to go in, or the Holy Spirit completely just shut doors on their lives through circumstances and closed things down, which made it then impossible for them to go north and impossible for them to go south. And the truth is, that happens in our lives too, doesn't it? It certainly happens to me. Times when you think, I've got it all worked out. I know how this is going to plan out. But then God either closes the door down, either through lack of peace, giving us that troubled sense of this just isn't right, or through circumstances, it just doesn't work. And so you go for the promotion that you've always wanted, or you go for the job that you've always wanted, and you're absolutely convinced in going for it that God's in this. This is what he wants for me. And then you go for the interview, and they say, absolutely not. There's no way you can work here. And you think, how's that? I thought this is how it was going to work out. Or you have a relationship and you think, I've got it all figured out. I'm going to marry them. I'm going to have kids. This is how it's all going to work out. And then you or they decide, no, this isn't how it's going to work out. I'm not that interested. What? I thought it was all sorted out. Or we get involved in different situations in our lives and one minute we're thinking this is great, but the next minute we just have a real troubled sense in our spirit thinking, I, I, just, I don't feel comfortable about this. I don't feel right about this. See, I think that is in many ways what is happening to Paul right here. See, sometimes when it happens to us, I think we can feel that God is abandoning us, that he's leaving us, that circumstances that we had it all worked out, he's stopping, God must be abandoning me. Or situations that we get into and we think, where are you, God? (laughs) He's right there, guiding you through the Holy Spirit, either through circumstances or through that sense of peace and faith explaining to you exactly where you should not go. Not north, not south, but this way. And the Apostle Paul recognizes that. He recognizes that this really is God closing the door of going north, that this really is God closing the door of going south. He recognizes that God is behind the unexpected direction change. And so he continues to go west, and he arrives then in Troas. This is what happens in Troas, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia 
and help us. Huh. Paul is going to be going to Europe. That wasn't part of the plan. They've never been to Europe before. But now Paul has this dream in the night about a guy from Macedonia, which is present-day Greece, Europe, saying, come over and help us. Paul then begins to set sail to Europe and is there in Europe that an unexpected people change takes place. See, Paul never would have imagined himself in Europe, my home continent. He never thought that that was what was going to happen. He had it all worked out. I know how it's going to work out. Me and Barnabas are going to go around all the churches that I've already planted and strengthen them in the gospel and for the, for the praise of God. Well, he doesn't go with Barnabas. It, the destination changes. And now, therefore, the people change. The people that Paul thought he was going to encounter are no longer the people because what happens here through the destination change is an unexpected people change takes place too. See, Paul ends up in the grand city of Philippi. And this was indeed a great city. It was steeped in Greek culture, Greek architecture. It was built around a grand Greek amphitheater. But it wasn't Greek. It was Roman. The Romans had taken it over in 168 BC and declared it to be a Roman colony. So although it was Greek in its feel, it was actually Roman in the way it would run. So they had certain benefits and delights of being a Roman colony. So if you were a Roman citizen, it meant that you wouldn't pay taxes. So anybody that used to be a soldier as they retire, guess where they're moving? Philippi, because they don't want to pay tax. So there was, this city was filled with a Greco-Roman culture and personnel. Well, the Apostle Paul then on the Sabbath goes looking for people to share the gospel with. He's aware God's called him there. And so he goes in the hunt for people that he can tell people about Jesus with. You'd always tend to start in the synagogues. It's a safe bet. You're going to find Jews or God-fearers. There are no synagogues in Philippi. So as culture would have it and custom would have it, you would always therefore go to an open sky position by a river. If there was no synagogue in a city, the Jews and the God-fearers would always gather around the nearest point to the gate, open sky, and by the river. So where does Paul go? Just outside the gate, to the river Ganges, and he finds there a group of God-fearing women. These women don't know Jesus. They're God-fearers. So they believe in the God of the Jews, but they've never heard of Jesus. They hadn't heard that the Messiah had come. They were seeking to please the God of the Jews in their lives, but they didn't really know even how that would work. And so they're God-fearers and they're open to it, but they had not yet become Christians. And Paul begins to share the gospel with them. He begins to tell them about Christ and him crucified. And here then is what happened, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As Paul begins to share the gospel with Lydia and this group of ladies who are God-fearers, they get saved. 
Lydia gives her life to Jesus Christ. She assigns to the gospel. She puts faith in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, as does this whole group of ladies. And as a result, Paul baptizes them there and then. You know what therefore happened? The first church in Europe from which many of you come was born. That's what happens in Acts 16. The very first church on European soil was born right here. Within days, this church began to grow. There was a slave girl who was demonized. And Paul rebuked this demon out of her and led her to Christ. He got put in jail for it, which he always got put in jail for kind of everything. You didn't want to hang out with Paul because you'd just end up in jail. But then God would always move within the jail. And so the second person to be saved outside of these ladies was the jailer. And so people started to get saved and started to be added to this Philippian church. And this church would go on to become a church that was of great value and great love and held very dear by the Apostle Paul. It was all a little unexpected though, don't you think? Even in the face of it, this story is so unexpected. It changed in personnel. It changed in destination. It changed in who. Paul thought he was going to be going with Barnabas to the churches that he'd already planted. But now he's going with Silas. And he's going to go to Europe. And when he gets to Europe, he's going to lead people to Christ. And the first church in Europe is going to be born, a church that is going to be helped and funded by a lady called Lydia and a church that would become dear to his heart. Even on the face of it, this is a great story of the unexpected, isn't it? And yet I think it really comes alive when you realize this is not just a story. See, this is not where we say, thanks for coming, please go home. That isn't it. This story comes alive, I think, when we realize this is not just historical narrative, but it is theology that should inform us today. It's theology which, when we understand, should help us in our mission to have our mission go from black and white to color. Because what I believe God wants us to understand from this story is this. In one sentence, write it down. Our God is the God of the unexpected. And so in mission, we should expect the unexpected too. Our God is the God of the unexpected. And so in mission... We should expect the unexpected too. See, yesterday, today and forever, our God is the same, right? That's what we sing. We say that our God never changes. He's full of compassion. He's mighty to save. He is sovereign over all, just like we see in this chapter in the way he is helping Paul in his mission. Well, our God is still the God of the unexpected. And so in our mission, just like Paul's, we should be willing to expect the unexpected. Things happen in our lives that are not just by accident or some type of weird fate. They've been ordained before the foundation of the world. Our God is the God of the unexpected. And so in our mission, we should expect the unexpected too. Why? Why should we be so clearly then expecting the unexpected as Sovereign Grace Church Sydney? Well, two reasons that I want us to look at. Number one, we should expect the unexpected because God is still sovereign today. We should expect the unexpected because God and His majesty is still sovereign today. 
You know, on the plane, both going to... Well, we had to go from Sydney to England and then England to America and then from America to England and then England to Australia. That's a lot of movie time, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I watched every movie that was on offer. Some of them were horrendous, but I felt like obliged as a paying customer to, oh, well, they, they, they provided it for us, let's watch it. So we watched just so many movies, and it reminded me of being a teenager, because although I didn't fly at all as a teenager, I did watch movies like that, just one after another. And one of my favorites was, was, a, was a movie called Sliding Doors. Has anybody seen Sliding Doors? Oh, it's a classic, you know, true story as well, it's a surprise. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a story, if you haven't seen it, about this lassie called Helen. Helen is played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And the way it works is, is she loses her job. And she, she's miffed about losing her job. She goes downstairs to the tube station. And, and just as she is about to get on the tube, the doors slide shut. Well, on the one side of the screen... As the door slides shut, somebody pushes her and she gets in. And the door's shut, and off she goes on the tube. On the other side of the screen, she gets to the doors and they shut and she misses it. And you watch Helen's life play out completely differently. On the one where they fall shut, she gets home and she finds that her husband is having an affair. Her life begins to fall apart, but then she meets another guy I believe called James, falls in love with him and begins to have a life that is absolutely thriving. On the situation where she doesn't get in, she never finds out that her husband is having an affair. But you watch her life just deteriorate year after year after year. And the whole premise of the, of the film, I think very cleverly, just plays out the difference between destiny and fate and chance, just giving us the idea that if she had just got on or not got on, uh, the life would be played out massively differently. Well, we know that's just fiction, right? Life isn't like that. And yet I think as Christians, we can actually think it is. And we can operate like it is. We can operate with the what-ifs. I know if I had just done that, my life would have been different. Right? So do you think it's just chance then, or fate, or destiny, that you didn't do that? I think as Christians we can still think like that, but the Bible doesn't teach that. It never teaches that. The Bible teaches without question that our, that our own free choices really do matter. It's very clear on that, that our choices are real. We're not just all robots for Jesus, okay? Our choices are very real ones, very free ones, and our lives are indeed a direct product of our decisions and the decisions we make. It teaches that wholeheartedly. But it also teaches that without any question at all, behind all things in our lives lies the sovereign, loving, compassionate hands of God. How does that work? I have no idea. But it does. Because we see it all the way through the Bible. So Genesis, the story of Joseph. Remember the one? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. It's unbelievable. 20 shekels of silver. That's all he was worth. But he's sold into slavery by his brothers. You would think that this is just going to be a disaster in his life. But through that decision by his brothers, he goes on to become the prime minister of Egypt. He saves thousands of people, including his brothers, one of which is Judah, the Judah that will hold the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. 
In Genesis 50 then, it's Joseph that says, you know what? Although my brothers meant it for harm, God meant it for good. He doesn't seem to have any problem with realizing that these brothers were not just robots for Jesus. They had their own free will. But behind even that decision, which was indeed a free decision of their lives, was God. God meant it for good. In John chapter 4, we see the Samaritan woman meeting Jesus by Jacob's well. Had somebody said to the Samaritan woman in the night, you must go to the well? No. No, she just rocked up one morning and thought, oh, I'm pretty thirsty, I'm going to get to the well. All right. But who does she meet there? She meets Jesus. And her life is radically changed. Was it her own free choice to go to the well? Absolutely. But in the sovereignty of God, was Jesus already on his way to meet her? Yeah, that's clear. Because the way the story works. Her decisions were real, but so is the sovereignty of God. And we see it operating in a missional sense here in Acts chapter 15 and 16, don't we? Was God behind the anger that Paul showed to Barnabas and the sharp disagreement that occurred? No, because God never tempts us to sin. God didn't cause him to sin. But did God use that for his glory and his sovereignty to establish two apostolic teams to ultimately send Paul by the grace of God on a mission to Europe to save Lydia? Oh yeah, that was planned before the foundation of the world. How does that work? I don't know. And that's why I like being a pastor. Because you can say, I don't know. <laughs> Doctors can't say that. You go to your doctor, you say, my arm hurts. And, he's, and you say, why is it? And he says, I don't know. You sack him. But a pastor gets paid to say, I don't know. I just don't know. I have no idea. They are train tracks in Scripture. Both are true. We are truly responsible for our decisions. And we are a product of our decisions. And yet God is ultimately sovereign in a loving and gracious way behind them all. How does that work? I do not know. But we see it time and time again in the way Scripture works it. I don't know how it works, but here's what I do know. And I think this should encourage every one of us in this room. What I do know is this. In mission, this truth of God's sovereignty should give us great confidence to expect the unexpected. Because he's behind your lives. The time and the date and the era and the location of your birth is not just some sliding door's fate. God chose it before the foundation of the earth. Your parents the people you'd be around, the place you'd grow up, the school that you'd be in. What about the college that you're now in and you serve in and you spend time in and you gather around friends with? What about those of you that work? What about your work? That's just, that's just your decision, right? Because you went to school and you trained for it and your job was in the paper and you applied for it and you got it and so it's all you. No. Behind all that is the sovereignty of God. He knew the people you were going to be around. He knew the people you were going to be with. What about the house that you live in? Whether you bought it or whether you rent it like I do and you rent it because you see what's available on the market at the time. Hey, this one looks good. It's just my decision, right? No. No, it's not just your decision. Behind what takes place in your life is the loving, compassionate, sovereign hands of God. Here's then the point. The people you encounter in your lives are not just random. 
They've been ordained by God for the purpose of mission. And that's a life-changing truth. Because then you realise Fran, who we live next door to, isn't just some random neighbour. But God's placed me and Emma next door to her so we can reach out to her for the glory of Jesus Christ. When you go to work and you spend time opposite a guy called Ben and a guy called James and you just think, well, they're just randoms. They're just guys I work with. Oh, no, they're not. They're guys that God has brought into your life very deliberately so that they can be your mission field. What about the people that I see in a coffee shop day after day after day? They just happen to like the coffee I drink. No. No, this isn't sliding doors. God has put them there for a purpose. And he's probably put them there because you're there as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, one who is called to share the gospel with them. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And I think it is that same principle that still stands today. The loving, compassionate, gracious, sovereign hands that clearly guided Paul, and we all nodded all the way through to, are the same sovereign, loving, compassionate hands that guide each and every one of us in our lives today. The people we encounter aren't just random, but they've been brought into our lives for purpose. I think if we can just have eyes to see this, it becomes life-changing in our mission. Because you realize we're not just running into a field that is just like, oh, surprise, this happens to be who it is. We are running into a field where God has chosen every blade of grass to be in its place and then says, right now you run. Do you see? That changes mission massively because they've been placed there sovereignly. So why should we expect the unexpected? Well, number one, because God is still sovereign today. Here's the second reason. Number two, because the message of the gospel is still powerful today. See, as Paul is in Antioch, before he went on his missionary trip, one thing that he was, and indeed could be absolutely sure of, was the power of the gospel. The fact that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, who Mark taught us on so wonderfully a few weeks ago. He was absolutely sure of this. He had seen it operate in his own life. He'd seen himself how the gospel can change lives in a moment. The Apostle Paul was opposed to Christians. He killed Christians for a living. The most unlikely person you're ever going to meet. It would be like Osama bin Laden becoming a Christian. He was a Christian terrorist. And yet in a moment, Jesus meets him. And the gospel affects him and turns his life around. And so as Paul sits in Antioch, he is full of faith. He knows that, man, the gospel can change anybody's life in a moment. In an absolute blink of an eye, the gospel can change even the most stubborn sinner to see Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because it's powerful. And so as the Apostle Paul sits in Antioch, having never met Lydia, having never met the slave girl, having never met the Philippian jailer. He's not concerned because he knows that whoever he encounters, the gospel can change them in a moment. It really is the dynamite of God, the power of God to affect all who believe. And therein then leads us to the second reason, I think. The second reason why we can expect the unexpected is because not only has God positioned people in our lives in a missional sense and in a sovereign way, He's then given us a weapon that can change their lives in a moment. 
He's brought them into our field. And then he gives us a gospel to change their lives. You know, one lady that that happened to a few years ago now is, is Alison Page. And I was talking to Alison just a few weeks ago about this message and wanting to her to share her testimony because as she was reached out to somebody, a normal lassie who was loving her and seeking to invite her to church and share the gospel, I thought this would give us an up-to-date vision of how this works in our lives. So let's welcome Alison. She comes up. Um, so my story starts back in 1999. I was 21 and I was working as admin support in a mailing company in Artarman. And I got to know one of the other admin staff. Her name was Brandy and we used to take our lunch breaks together. Um, I was pretty shy so it was hard work for her but she befriended me and we became really good friends um, over weeks and weeks of, of shared lunches. So Brandy was a Christian um, I knew that because, you know, you come in on a Monday, how was your weekend? You know, she'd talk about, talk about church. Um, she would speak about God as if he was a personal friend, not, you know, an arbitrary whatever. Um, she'd include him in her decision-making processes. Um, so she was pretty, you know, she, she was pretty open about being a Christian. Um, now, my perception of Christians at that time was that they were bound by a lot of rules. Um, that's, I guess that's how I viewed the Bible, like a rule book. Um, they didn't know how to have a good time and uh, that they were pretty judgmental. So Brandy was not like that. Um, she was a lot of fun. She was very funny. Um, we, I just remember my work at that time was just, you know, it was just a laugh. Um, we used to go out drinking, we'd go out dancing in the city. You know, I can remember just walking around at nights, just, you know, laughing. We could barely stand up. It was just, was great. Um, that really shattered my belief that Christians couldn't have fun because she was more fun than a lot of my non-Christian friends. So, you know, that was a, that was a good start for me. Um, she invited me to church pretty early on in our friendship. Um, and it was, you know, it was just really natural. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't, you know, sit down, we need to talk, you know. It was just, you know, what are you doing? Do you want to come along? Um, I said no, just, you know, it wasn't for me. I was in a relationship at the time and I just viewed it as a waste of time. I'd much rather spend Sunday with my boyfriend. Um, so I said no. So she didn't have a problem with that. She didn't kind of go, okay, well, you know, thanks thanks very much, but I'll go make friends with someone else and, and try my luck there. Um, she didn't suggest that that was wrong. She didn't, you know, judge me for, for not wanting to come, but she just kept befriending me um, and just kept being this Christian presence in my life. Uh, a few months later, she tried again, you know, if you're free, come along. And I just went, look, I'm, I'm just not interested, you know, I'm, you know, hanging out with Paul, like I don't want to, he's not going to come. So she said, we'll invite him. So it, it just wasn't my thing, and, uh, and I declined again. So 1999 became 2000. Um, she was probably one of my closest friends at the time because we just continued to spend time together and she continued to, you know, get to know me and to love me. Um, I met her husband. I used to go to her place for meals. Um, I was, you know, pretty much destroying my life at the time just through choices I was making and I confided in her with a lot of that and, again, she didn't judge me. Um, she didn't, 
you know, kind of flip open a Bible that I'd never read and didn't understand and, and point out where I was going wrong. Um, she just loved me and just kept asking me to church every now and then. Um, she was very generous with her time. She was very servant-hearted. And I guess she, she lived out um, being a Christian, so her actions really counted more than, more than a lot of her words. Um, she never told me that I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. She never told me I was going to go to hell. Um, she never, you know, judged me or fell into any of those stereotypes that I think can really offend a lot of non-believers. Um, she was just a normal friend, my fun friend, uh, who just loved Jesus. So my circumstances changed a bit when I broke up with my boyfriend. Um, it was a difficult time. She consoled me, um, you know, fed me ice cream, agreed he was a jerk. Um, <laughs> She told me that God had a better plan for my life and at the time I thought, yep, whatever, you know, so does the tooth fairy, it's really whatever. But I can still remember that so clearly where we were. Um, I, can, I can picture her saying to that me, it is just crystal clear her saying that God had a better plan for my life. Um, and then she asked me to church again. So this time I said yes and it wasn't that I really wanted to go and it wasn't that I thought, right, well, if God's got a better plan, let's go. Let's go find out what it is. It was just that I figured it would fill in some time um, and save me, you know, sitting at home feeling sorry for myself. So after I agreed, um, she invited me to dinner with some of the other people that she went to church with so that when I did come along on a Sunday, it wasn't weird. Um, And again, they were just, you know, nice, normal people. One of them was Chris, though. and, and again, it just helped to start break down those stereotypes that I had and start to make the whole process a bit easier for me. Um, so then I started going along to church. So I didn't have a car. Um, she used to pick me up from my flat in Artarman and she'd drive me to St Albans at Linfield, even though the train would have, like it was, the train was right there. So it wasn't difficult for me to get there, but she just made it that much easier. Um, also Wednesday evenings for home group. Um, she just introduced me to everyone that she knew. And I felt really welcomed, even though I think I thought walking into a church as a non-Christian, people wouldn't want to be my friend. Um, So she really helped facilitate a lot of those friendships. So by late 2000, um, I was going along to church on Sundays. I was going to home group on Wednesdays. I wasn't participating, um, but I listened. And I asked a lot of questions of Brandy when she used to drive me back home again. So that was time well spent. Um, when the day came that I was convicted of my need for a saviour, um, she was one of the people that helped me through that. She prayed with me, supported me. Um, she bought me a couple of books and just helped show me the way forward. You know, what do I do? How do I do it? What do I do next? So, yeah, I think, I think it can be easy to be worried about being rejected um, if you want to share the gospel with people and, as a result, not do anything, not invite people to church, not share the gospel. Um, and I guess... I've been talking for a couple of minutes, but Brandy persisted with me for nearly two years and she got rejected by me, I don't know, every month, six weeks or so, um, and just continued to love me through that. She didn't give up. She didn't, um, you know, try try someone else or she didn't, I guess she didn't take no for an answer. Um, so she was in my world and she genuinely loved me and, uh, yeah, God definitely worked through her to win me, win me back to him. Thank you.
I love the way Brandy reached out to Alison. You know, I think that's the point in so many ways about evangelism. It's not that complicated. It's Jesus' friends and sinners. Befriend people and love them and spend time with them and talk to them and seek to win them to Jesus through, through our lives. And then when the moments come when we can share, when we do, we share boldly and, and graciously in, in the desire to win them to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I love the way Brandy reached out to Alison. But I also love the way that God sovereignly brought Brandy into Alison's life. Was it Brandy's decision independently, in her own free will, to happen to work where Alison works? Oh yeah, it's completely her decision. And yet behind her decisions lies a sovereign, compassionate, gracious God who wanted Brandy there. So when Alison walks in, Brandy can minister the gospel to her. I love that. That's the way God works in our lives. He positions us with people around us, not only for his glory and not only for our good, but with the mission in mind. It's what he does in Acts. It's what he still does today. And so I want to encourage you folks, just practically, God is bringing Allisons into your life as well. Some of them will already be there. Others you won't have met yet. But the people you meet, the people you work with, the people that are your neighbors, they're not just accidents. But God in his grace is positioning you for your good, his glory, and the advancement of the gospel. So expect the unexpected. Our God is the God of the unexpected. And so in our mission, we should expect the unexpected too. And let us take courage then and confidence as we go into the world to win the world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how can we thank you enough for your, your divine, complex sovereignty? Lord, what confidence this gives us as we seek to win people to you, knowing that this isn't just a, a random group of people before us, but in the tapestry of life, you have carefully chosen threads and weaved them into our lives for our good, your glory, and the advancement of the gospel. Lord, give us fresh eyes to see then the people that you've put around us. Lord, help us to slow down enough to realize they're there for purpose. Help us to slow down enough with compassion to start befriending them with confidence and faith so that we may win them to you. Lord, you are so kind in the way you pursued us. And yet you have said... As the Father has sent me, I now send you. So, Lord, would we go with fresh courage and fresh confidence in the world to win the world, expecting the unexpected. Amen. Well, Tom.